0: last time we ended in Matthew 23 and verse
1: 15, and today we'll finish up Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to review the first 15 verses, I'm going to review them at the end, to kind of tie this whole chapter together. It's all the same discourse by Jesus. All right, let's start reading in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. Whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift? Or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them, In the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witness is against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Starting in verse 16, he calls them blind guides. Can you imagine this? Someone is, we're at a college campus and, you know, some prospective students are at the college campus and someone's giving me a tour of the campus and they're walking along. And he says, over here is a library. And they look at it and it's actually the student center. And they walk on a little further and say, over here is the science building. And what do you know? It's a dorm room. They keep walking along. Well, over here is the nice uh, physical fitness facility. And all it is is an outdoor green space with grass. They're blind guides. How silly would that look to do that? And that's what they are. They're blind guides. They, they have this facade of leading people in the truth, but they're not leading them in the truth. They're leading them, as he says earlier in Matthew, the blind leading the blind—where they both end up in a ditch. Imagine a blind person trying to drive a car. Where would they end up in a ditch? Yes, they end up in a ditch. And so we need to make sure that we have our ducks in a row before we uh, pretend to be leading somebody. Because there's lots of people in this world who are blind as bats, as old saying goes, and they don't have sonar to help them find those mosquitoes and those bugs they like to eat. They don't have that. They're blind as blind can be, and they're leading people, and they're going to be very accountable on Judgment Day. you have talked about this many times in this in this uh, fellowship. The people who have the greatest judgment on Judgment Day are those who are false teachers and the fallen angels. They go to Tartarus, the Greek word is, the blackest of darkness Forever. So we need to make sure we have our duction role that we're not leading people into untruth in the facade of leading them into truth, but they're blind guides, and he gives some reasons why they're blind guides because they're making things that are little big, and making things that are big little. They're making important things unimportant, and making unimportant things important. So examine yourself, friends. Think about your life. Just maybe, just think about the last week or so. Think about the things you've said, the things you've done, the things you've thought about. Have you made little things big? Have you made unimportant things important? Think about it, friends. Have you made things that are supposed to be important unimportant? You know, we wake up in the morning, we think about all the things we're doing today, right? Is that what we think about? And... Some of those things are very, very unimportant, friends. They have no impact on eternity. And yet we go, sometimes we go to those things. And the things that are costed, things that are left to the wayside are things that are, are important. You know, I think about Mary and Martha. we talked about this before in this fellowship. Martha was so concerned with the cooking and the cleaning. The things, I mean, that's important. People need to eat. I think a house needs to be cleaned if it can be. But they, she was doing those things, and Mary had the most important thing in mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. But think about your life, friends. Are the things that are really important unimportant to you? Are things that are really supposed to be big little to you? Are things that are little supposed to be big? I mean, they had their, their things all backwards here. The temple was supposed to be God's house. Well, if you swore by that, no big deal. But the gold of the temple, this gold is sanctified, it's set apart by the fact that it's part of the temple. Well, if you swear by that, then it means something. How backwards is that? They made important important things, unimportant, the temple of God, the house of God. And they made unimportant things, gold. Gold is important. Well, they made to the world, it is. But it shouldn't be to us. And they made that important, even though it was unimportant. Whoever swears by the altar... No, this is where animals were sacrificed. The blood was shed here for the reminder of sins, of bringing forth the conscience of their sins year in, year out. It was a shadow of Christ who was to come. The most important thing that ever happened. If they treat the altar like it's no big deal. But the gift you put on top of the altar, that's the most important thing. So they had things backwards. And we need to make sure as we're going about our lives, the devil doesn't get us distracted and taken off track to think things that are important really aren't important, friends. Your work, you can get to it later. Your family, you can't get to them later. They're going to grow up and be gone. <coughs> very soon. In a very relative way. Very soon. Those things can be done later. They're not going to matter. But the things that do matter. God, if the, you know, we talk about priorities all the time, especially, but I just, as i going through this and study, I just felt the Lord admonishing me to do this again. Okay, so there's something, I mean, some, we need to examine ourselves and make sure our, our priorities are straight, friends. They are making important things and putting them in their tro- proper place. In their proper place. Who are swears by the temple, swears by it, and him who dwells in it. Wow, what a, what a bold thing to do. You know, let's, let's just go to Matthew uh, 5 for a second here. We know that Jesus abrogated this whole swearing thing, even though the Old Testament talks about it. <laughs> And Jesus isn't isn't uh, approving of their swearing. He's be pointing out their lack of priorities in their swearing. Matthew 5, starting in verse 33, "...again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king." Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no no. Whatever is more than ease is from the evil one. So Jesus is not uh, not approving of their swearing. He's simply pointing out the hypocrisy in their swearing, how they are making important things unimportant and unimportant things important. I mean, look at verse twenty-three. They were so particular. They would. It's like it would like one of us going to our spice rack in our kitchen, and divvying out 10% of each spice and then giving it to the Lord. But they're not being just, not being just, not being merciful, and not being faithful. You see, those are the weightier things of God's law. Those are the weightier things. But they're going real particular with these little tiny things, these little tiny details. And of course, Jesus says, because they're under the law still, they're Jewish people who have a temple tax system, and so he says, you should have not have forsaken the latter and still done the former and so you should be doing both and now of course we know we've gone through a tithing issue here in our fellowship uh tithing is a jewish tax system it's not required of new testament saints to give a tithe a 10 percent of all their money all their food everything but i'll tell you this you should be giving everything to the lord um i don't know what happened to our i'm kind of putting on the spot here i don't know what happened to our offering box but we need to is it over here Okay, I'm sorry. Back there in the corner. That's why I didn't see it. Um, but we need to make sure we're giving to the Lord and giving to the fellowship here so we can... Because our, our plan, uh, most of us know this, Ray, but our plan is not to be in here forever. Uh, this is John Anita's house, and we appreciate the fact that he let us stay here. But uh, if we continue to grow, we're not going to fit here very much longer. Okay, We're already stretching it to the limits, if you ask me. And so um, that's something to give towards for a meeting place for us in the future. Something extravagant or fancy, uh, like you see in churches nowadays. I remember one time I was in I was in college still and I went to this church I used to be a part of, a local church, Baptist church in, in Louisiana, and they were doing additions to it. And I went into their bathrooms and their bathrooms had the you know the put your hand in it till the water comes on. You know? On on oh, oh, and the same with the paper towels. You know, and I was like what's what's this all about? That seems like a waste of God's money. People are giving for these things, like a waste of God's money. Well, we want to reach out to rich people too, they say. Uh, well, you don't reach out to rich people by in, indulging their covetousness and their greed. Uh, you reach out to them by telling them the truth. Uh, but we're not going to do that here in this fellowship. We just need a, a larger place to meet Him. So it's something to think about as you're thinking about, as we talk about this tithing issue here. But this is something, that, of course, uh, Jesus wouldn't say this to us. He wouldn't say to us, you should tithe your your. Uh, Your cumin and your uh, your red pepper flakes and your and your garlic powder, uh, or whatever else you use in your cooking, he wouldn't tell you to do that. Um, You're to give everything to Christ, everything to God. It all belongs to Him. That's the difference. So we're under a different covenant now. Verse twenty four: Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, you ladies, you had your colanders to strain out your pasta. Uh, a gnat will pass right through those holes, wouldn't it? And in fact, there probably isn't uh, a strainer around that I'm aware of that'll, that a gnat won't pass through. Uh, actually, in those days, when they had their wine vats, and they would strain it out using like, some kind of linen, some kind of T-shirt, or some kind of cloth. And that would catch gnats. Can you imagine someone straining out, uh, they have a vat of wine there, and they're straining out the, the gnats, and there's a camel in the middle of it, and they let that jump in there. And they're willing to swallow a camel like you actually because See, Jesus is using hyperbole here, isn't he? Ah, I can't swallow a camel. Now, I want to take the gnats out of my wine here. And I'm to strain them out because I don't want to swallow a gnat. But, um, I'll swallow a camel whole. So they're making small things big. And they're making big things as if they were small because you can't swallow a camel. And who cares if you swallow a gnat? We've all done it. Just running in soccer.
2: You
1: know. Maybe you're driving down the road, you had the window open, it flies in all of a sudden and gets in your mouth, or maybe it smacks you on your glasses, which happened to me. The first year I was here, I was driving to Walmart late at night and had the window down, this praising the Lord, and I had my glasses on, all of a sudden, whoosh, a bug splatters all over my glasses, guts and everything. Good thing I had my glasses on. But can you imagine a camel smacking me in the glasses when driving down the road? I'd be knocked out. So they're making big things little and making little things big. It's interesting to to hear Jesus talk in this way. It's even humorous, as I read through this over and over again. It was last week. It's humorous, even, to think about these things. Uh, But we need to make sure we're not doing the same thing. Um, We may not look at it like that. But we need to examine ourselves and make sure we're not making unimportant things important. And important things unimportant. (laughs) Verse twenty five Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self indulgence. <laughs> Blind Pharisee, first clean cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, that the outside the inside the outside of them may be clean also. So you clean the inside, that the outside may be clean also. A cup or a dish is only clean on the outside, it is no good for eating, and no good for drinking. It's good for show alone. That's what these Pharisees were good for. Show alone. Uh, Don't be a kind of Christian that's only good for show alone. And not not only is only good for show alone, but it's not good for show alone in front of everybody. It's not good for show alone in front of Jesus, who sees the inside. It'd be like someone walking into a nice, fancy, million-dollar house, and they have their china cabinet—really big china cabinet—and you can, and the person who's walking around could see through the china onto the inside of it and realized that these people were being lazy, their servants were being lazy, they weren't cleaning the inside of the cup and dish, just the outside. And so what looks good for show, this person who walks around, sees the china, who can see through it, it's not good for show for him. And so cleaning the outside of the cup and dish is only good for show for people, who don't know any better. But it's not good for show for Jesus. Uh, and I'll tell you this: if you clean, if you get cleaned from inside out, the outside will get cleaned up. It will get cleaned up. And friends, I, I want I want us to be aware of something. Beware of something. In our fellowship, we believe in modesty, we believe in meekness. But when someone comes into our fellowship, they're a former pagan, a former heathen, and engaged in all kinds of wickedness, like I was in. We're to get the inside of the dish cleaned out first. If we come in, they come in, and all we start focusing on, all oh, this, 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 and the all, all outside stuff. What's that going to tell them? What's that What's that going to communicate to them? The wrong thing. The inside is what's important, and the outside, I'm not saying we can't admonish them about the outside things, but that will happen naturally to someone if their inside is cleaned out. But when someone comes in, and all we focus on is the outside, that, t- that communicates the wrong message to them. And also, I think it shows... Us, what our heart is like. That's all external. No, it's internal, friends. Not that the external is unimportant. Cause You see right here, when the inside gets cleaned up, the outside gets cleaned up too. It gets cleaned up. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, who indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Can you imagine if these graveyards had open tombs, how many people would visit them then? How many people would visit the graveyard down the road if all the graves down there were open for people to see what was inside of them? You wouldn't see pretty flowers around the graves then. And I want to ask you this. If your life was open and bare before everyone, how many would think you're godly? How many would want to come to your church? How many would want to think you're a godly, holy person. How many people would look up to you if your tomb was opened up, your life was opened up, and led for anyone? Would they bring flowers to your gravesite? Is, is your is your, your your life, your tomb, open and full of dead man's bones? Or is it really on the inside the same way it is on the outside? Because tombs, man, we, we see them, I mean, you've been to gravesites before, they're all nice and pretty, they make sure they mow the lawn, make sure they mow it, but they make the grasses perfect usually. Lots of good fertilizer underneath there. It's good grass. There's flowers. The, the tombs are real nice and chiseled. They spend a lot of money on these these headstones. Or maybe they have big statues in them. Lots of money paid for this stuff. But underneath, it's just deadness. It has, an, has a, an appearance of life, but it's truly dead. And so if God were to open up the tomb of your life, would people think, oh, man, I, I, do they still think the same thing about what they think now? That's the question to ask yourself. So they were full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. They appeared righteously to men, outwardly, but inside full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn them. You decorate them, the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers of them in the blood of the prophets. What a bunch of lying hypocrites. They prove they would have taken part because the Lord of glory... Who they prophesied about, who they talked about and pointed to, who was coming, they're going to kill him. And they considered him demon possessed. They're liars. And there's a lot of people who around this these days they'll they'll appreciate the men of God from the past. But the men of God in the present, they can't stand them. They can't and they have the same message, and they can't stand them. They'll, they'll say, "Oh man, Leonard Ravenhill, is just a great preacher. That's a great preacher." But they won't obey one word his sermons say. They'll, they'll they'll make quotations from people from the past, but they don't do the things that those preachers talk about. And that's what these Pharisees were like. So these hypocrites were like, and they're gonna they're gonna follow in the footsteps of their fathers. Now, our fathers here. I don't think it necessarily means literal fathers, like I'm the father of Malachi. or uh, Obviously, it couldn't mean that because many generations passed. but I don't even think it necessarily means um, genealogically, like it would be Malachi's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I don't think it even means that. And we'll see why here in a second, why I think that. It says in verse 32, Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Brood of vipers. Sons of snakes, sons of the serpent, sons of the evil one. Now, does the devil really have sons in the literal sense that he has any offspring? No. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Angels can't reproduce. Uh, Even fallen angels can't reproduce. But they're sons of snakes. It's like, I am a son of God. God didn't give birth to me. You know, he 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 didn't, you know, my, my mother and father are my mother and father. But he is my father. He is my spiritual father. He is my true father. He's a father to the fatherless. Even my father was not around and could care less about me, my father was there. But they're sons of snakes, sons of vipers. They have the same characteristics of the men who killed the prophets. The same character, the same moral code. They had the same attributes. That's how they're sons of vipers. They're brood of vipers. That's, that's how those people were their fathers. Verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. And this is going to talk about the future. Pay attention to the language. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This is talking about the early Christians, the apostles, scribes. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all scribes. Paul was a scribe. He wrote Galatians. And he had other people write his other books. You know, Peter was a scribe. They wrote down letters. They, their profession was writing stuff. And then the, all the manuscripts we have, the Greek manuscripts we have that are behind our New Testament, they are written down by scribes to carry the word of God to this day. And even though God, see, 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 what Christ is saying here is, I haven't given up on you yet. I'm going to send you these people. But then he's going to tell them what they're going to do about it. I'm going to send you wise men. I'm going to send you, well, you do think they're foolish, of course. I'm going to send you scribes, I'm going to send you prophets, and you're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to scourge them. When a man of God speaks the word of God, we ought to listen. No matter what our presuppositions or preconceptions are, we got to listen to hear what God has to say. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, did these people who are alive, who he's speaking to, literally murder Zachariah son of Berechiah, the prophet Zechariah? Impossible. Happened hundreds of years before Jesus said this. Hundreds of years. In fact, to prove my point that this is not talking about lineage-wise, we know that Abel was killed by who? Amen. And what happened to Cain's lineage in the flood? It was wiped out. He doesn't have a lineage anymore. So these people can't even be in the physical lineage of Cain. And so he's talking about, and we see right here, in verse thirty six, surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, generation can mean two things. From the Greek word genea. Okay? It can mean uh, those exhibiting common characteristics or interest or a race kind of people. Okay, that's the first definition you can have for genia. Okay, the second is the sum total of all people born at about the same time. Now, that second definition is how it's generally used in the English language nowadays. But that's not what Jesus means here. That's not what he means here. Because if he means that, then his apostles are condemned. Because they're a part of that generation. Not only that, but he's a part of that generation, so he's condemned himself by saying that. And we know... It's not talking about race of people, because we know this race of people who he's talking about couldn't have taken part in killing Abel. So it's talking about a group of people who have the same characteristics, the same interest, they're the same kind of person. And upon them shall all the blood, not upon, I mean, he's not saying that the people he's talking to who are wicked, he's holding them accountable for the, the blood of other people shed. Now let's go to Ezekiel 18 for a second here to prove my point. And, and I actually, when I did a, a video on Romans 5, an imputation, uh, a Calvinist actually used this verse right here to prove to me that imputation is true. That he literally believed that the people who Jesus was talking to right then were going to be held accountable by God for the blood of all the prophets killed, the blood of Zechariah. And the blood of Cain, anything in between the uh, blood of Abel, anything in between there. Abel was the first one killed. Zechariah was the last prophet killed before Jesus spoke here. Okay? In the Old Testament. And so he he, he literally believes that God's going to hold the people Jesus is speaking to accountable for things they didn't do. And I'm going to show you that's not possible. Ezekiel eighteen. We'll start in verse one and we're kinda going of, kind to of move around. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But I would encourage you to read through the whole thing on your own time. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, said the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. So, like me saying, well, I eat some sour grapes, and Malachi gets a sour, ma- sour taste in his mouth. Is that possible. Not possible. That's what they're saying. The, the house of Israel was saying these things. He said, as I live, you should no longer use this proverb. It's not for me, God is saying, in Israel. And then he goes through and talks about... Um, let's just read through a little bit. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. But a man is just and does what is lawful and right. He he's not eaten in the mountains, nor lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity... He has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing. But he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man. He has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully. He is just. He shall surely live. This is the Lord God. He begets a son who is a robber, or a shedder of blood, or does any of those things. As none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains, or defiled his neighbor's wife, he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, his exacted user taken in increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. If he done any of those abominations, he shall surely die, his blood shall be upon him. So you see, the son is not entering into life, Because of the righteousness of his father. Make sure you get that, children. You will not enter into life because of your parents' righteousness. Either you will live righteous or you won't. That's your choice to make. And we'll just skip to verse 19 here. Uh, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the Son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Can't get any clearer than that, friends. This chapter of the Bible alone destroys original sin, the doctrine of original sin, it destroys the doctrine of we're born with a sinful nature because Adam sinned, which makes us sin. Destroys both doctrines. This one chapter of the Bible. Anyone that ever tries to prove these doctrines to you, these false doctrines, you, you point them to that chapter of the Bible and show them for yourself. So Jesus is not saying here that this generation that's before him, this group of some of the people who are living at the same period of time, born around the same period of time, are going to be accountable for another person's sins. That's not the word. The way jinni is being used here. The way jinni is being used here, the same type or kind of people, and all of them are accountable for their own sins individually. But they're all alike. And how are they all alike? They all kill righteous people. They all kill God's messengers. They could care less about God's message and don't listen to God's messengers. They may hear them, but they don't listen to them. a the difference. You know, I sat in high school, and I heard the teacher, but I didn't listen to him. I learned barely anything in high school. I was a wicked sinner. I could care less what the teacher had to say. I'd rather fool around than listen to the teacher. You can hear with your physical ear, but not listen, not take in, not apply it. That's the way those people were. It's all the blood. And we, we see in the, in the Scripture... Other ways that sons is used, not in a literal way. In John 8, 37 through 44, Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of the devil. Now, let's just go over there and read it for a second here. John 8. <clears throat> and I want you to pick up here on the two different ways the word son is being used. Now, Jesus is using it and how they're using it. Okay, Starting in verse 37 of John 8. Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham was our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, didn't Jesus just call them Abraham's children? So he's using the word children in a different way here, which is obvious from the context. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand to the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. So we see the word son is not always used in a sense of literal son, one step away, or even many steps away son. You know, Jesus is the son of David, he was many steps away from David. He was the son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. He's the seed of Eve, according to Genesis. But there are many steps away. But it's not even talking about in that sense here. These these people who were Pharisees, who were the hypocrites, it doesn't necessarily mean that their, their lineage, their physical descendants, were the ones who killed these men. It could have been someone who was far more removed than that. But they are sons in this sense. that they do the same things those people did they do the same things those people did. And before we go through verse 37 through 39, I want to summarize what Jesus says in in these 36 verses here in Matthew 23. This is hypocritical religion. These are the ten commandments, per se, of hypocritical religion. Number one, they say, but they don't do. They say with their mouth, but they don't do. Number two, They make their traditions or preferences into mandates or absolute truth. They make their preferences or their traditions, which are not necessarily wrong to have, but they make them into God's truth. Number three, they want as many people as possible to see their religious activities. Look at me, because they're doing it for man's praise, not for God's praise. (laughs) Number four, they want to take honor and glory for themselves instead of pointing people to God. They want honor and glory. No, they want to be God. They want to take God's place. Number five, they're zealous for converting people to their traditions instead of God's word. They're zealous for... For converting people to their traditions instead of God's words. Number six. They make little things big and big things little. They make important things unimportant and unimportant things important. Number seven. Outward piety instead of inward purity. Or even at the expense of of inward purity. Number eight, they honor dead men of God, but despise present men of God. They honor dead men of God, but despise present men of God. Number nine, they shut up truth-tellers any way they can. They'll lie about them, they'll kill them, they'll put them in jail, They shut up truth-tellers any way they can. In the tenth characteristic of the hypocritical religion, the religion of hypocrites is they're they're hell-bound. They're hell-bound. That's a summary of verses 1 through 36. And this is a scathing rebuke of Jesus, the last one he'll get from them, that they'll get from him. The scathing rebuke of Jesus. In fact, this is the last public discourse he will give to these people. Verse thirty seven O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see the heart of God in this verse. This one verse right here. That even though he gave the scathing rebuke to them, that and when he says Jerusalem, obviously I'm talking about the physical city. He's not even talking about the people, only the people contained in that city. he That's the center of religious activity for, for Judaism. He was talking about the Jewish people as a whole. And he wanted to gather. Them. So you see here that God wanted something. Because Christ only wanted what the Father wanted, right? We see that, that God wanted something that did not come to pass. Now, what does that tell you about God's sovereignty? Does it tell you he gets everything he wants? It tells you that most of the things he wants, he does not get. Yet some people will tell you that sovereignty means God gets every single thing he wants. And when everything that happens is God's will. it says right here very clearly that Jesus wanted to gather these people together, but they were not able. They were not willing. They were not willing. He wanted. He had a, a fatherly, motherly, in some sense, love for them. Wanted to gather them together, wanted them to be his offspring instead of the offspring of the devil, but they were not willing. And that's God's heart towards everybody. He doesn't play favorites, He doesn't esteem one man, He doesn't love the Jewish people more than He loves you as a Gentile. That's His heart towards you. He wants to gather you together. And if you're not gathered together, God, there's only one reason not because God failed. Not because God didn't do all he could do, because you were not willing. That's it. That's the only reason on Judgment Day, is that you were not willing, if it doesn't happen. See, your house is left to you desolate. Interesting here that he says your house. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about the temple. And this is a prophecy of future destruction to that temple, which he'll talk about here pretty soon. But he doesn't call it my house anymore. He doesn't call it God's house anymore. It's your house. Because after after he dies on the cross, what happens to the, 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 the curtain? It's ripped open. This is done with. And the blood of the new covenant has been shed beginning the new covenant. He ripped it open. It's your house now. And when the third temple gets built, it's not God's house. That's their house. That's been done away with. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, these people right here, none of them are actually going to see him come, but he's talking to this generation of the wicked who are going to, the wicked are going to be around to the end. In fact, they'll increase and get larger and stronger until the end. And we know that in the end, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, that every eye shall see him. Even those on whom, who pierced him, the Jewish people will see him. The ones who pierced him will see him when he returns, and hopefully for their sake. Hopefully they will be able to say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Instead of rocks fall upon us, the day of his wrath has come. And so, in Matthew twenty-three, not only do you see a scathing rebuke from Jesus, but you see at the very end the compassion of Jesus he's not rebuking them just to be harsh he's rebuking them for their own good to wake them up to jar them out of their sleep their slumber and awake unto righteous and sin not as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15-34 Uh, stop there. Does anyone have questions or objections or things they want to add?
3: Yes, Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, back in uh, verse 35, he's talking about uh, Abel uh, to the blood of Zechariah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they murdered them, and obviously they didn't physically murder them. Mm-hmm. And he says between the temple and the altar, uh, do you think that that could mean because he talked earlier about the temple, the altar, that they did not esteem the temple or the altar, but that type of murder actually means that they did not esteem the actual righteousness of those men's lives, everyone from Abel to Zechariah, do you think it might mean that?
1: Interesting, I hadn't thought about that. <coughs> um, I just take it literally that the Zechariah was actually killed there. Right. Zechariah himself, not Abel, but Zechariah was actually killed there. Um, now, it doesn't say that in Zechariah. Um... <coughs> And uh, there is another Zechariah, who was killed in that way. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, and that's in Second Chronicles chapter twenty, I believe. That's so a different Zechariah, though. Uh, but I just assume that this was Zechariah himself, the prophet, being killed in that way, right there. Yeah, the, the second second to last book of the Old Testament. Yeah, which is about no, not not, the, not John the Baptist's father. But Zachariah the prophet, you know, the book in the Old Testament named after him. How
4: many, how many years was it between the, uh, the, uh, that last prophet and uh,
1: About three or 400 years.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think
1: yeah. I could be wrong on that. I don't have it exactly
4: down.
0: Yeah, yeah the reason why I was asking that is Abel. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say he was a prophet. Right. Uh, but the thing that Abel did have is. Uh, he had uh, the righteous deeds in his life. Mm-hmm. He did what was acceptable to the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, and, and if he's included with Zechariah, to me the things they had in common is they they did what was acceptable unto the Lord,
4: mm-hmm.
0: and that's why I'm, I'm I'm asking if if you think that murder might mean that they did not esteem that part that they did not esteem what was acceptable to the Lord because mm-hmm. when he's talking about the the altar and the and the reason the death, he was killed. Right, the altar in the temple, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of look at that and it kind of reminds me of what he said earlier mm-hmm. uh, about the altar and the temple in the same passage. Sure. That's the reason why
1: I was asking. You. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even Abel, if you look back to when he was killed, he was killed for offering the right sacrifice.
4: Right.
1: So, that, I mean, that's possible. I would tend to still take it literally that Zechariah himself was killed. He doesn't call Abel a prophet here, um, but he was a righteous man. Right. And um, so was Zechariah. And it's simply comparing... The righteous to the wicked here, and how the wicked treat the righteous uh, when they come and tell them the truth. And so, I, I would still lean towards Zechariah, son of Berechiah, being who, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar—that he was actually killed there. And, and in doing so, they are treating a holy place as an unholy place by shedding the blood of a man who's preaching the truth to them. And uh, you know, Abel was treated harshly by Cain, and he even says, I think in the. Uh, even Jude or Peter says you've gone the way of Cain. And so um, our mass in First John. But uh either way, Cain is like the sim- is like a symbol for, for wickedness, for unrighteousness. And uh, these people are following in their in their footsteps.
4: The statue, listen, God requires what? Just, just a thought to <coughs> uh, kind of blow A that line. Uh, different idea, I, I had a question about the whole we hear this in the open air all the time about you know, Jesus just for the Pharisees. Uh-huh. And uh, I think clearly by your explanation, it would be anybody that's not just religious leaders, but anyone who's. Doing this religious activity of the on the outside. Oh, yes. Yeah. This heracetical uh, condition will really apply to anyone, not just religious leaders of, of Israel. Yes. Even today, we see lots of people that come out there and have this experience of godliness, and yet out of, them, out of their hearts, the issues speak for life, and they just profess all kinds <coughs> of wickedness. <and> right. <coughs> it's easy to tell them apart you know, by that. I just, uh, I think you have with
1: that or I Oh yeah, there's definitely agreement with that. Uh, the true Pharisees of these days are, are the professing Christians who are living on godliness. The problem Jesus had with the Pharisees, we see in Matthew 23, is not they were godly, or trying to be too godly, or trying to obey God's commandments. The problem is they weren't obeying God's commandments. That was the problem Jesus had with them. Even though on the outside, they appeared to men to be righteous. They were not actually righteous. And so, <clears throat> most of the, the worldly churchianity, uh, they they think it's the other way around. That because they're, they still keep on sinning and they're not living holy, that they're the ones who are the, you know, we're the Pharisees and we're living holy and they're not the Pharisees because they're not living holy. You know, so they have it all backwards. Jesus is them. Yeah, and Jesus is discovering them. Uh, but going back to the Cain and Abel thing for a second. Cain obviously knew what was required of him. Listen to what God said to him in Genesis chapter 4 and verse... Uh, six after God did not accept his offering, and his countenance fell. God said, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will it not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and it is des- it is desirous for you. But you should rule over it. And so obviously with God saying that, he knew what was required of him, whether he knew it through God or through through Abel, he knew it. He knew what was required of him. And uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that Abel had said something to him. It doesn't say that there, but. It
4: seems like even the Pharisees had that understanding that
2: that, that love and faith and things they were leaving out. They made the 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 tithing to be the the most important thing, and they were doing the same thing. They weren't doing acceptable things, the most important
3: things to God, but they were doing required law. Like the things that could be seen by men. Yeah, right. Just modern yeah. dress up for church, but don't home, don't right. Yeah. <laughs> I could remember
1: those things required in the law. Ten percent of, life life. 10% of all, all things. Yeah. yeah, all things. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he said, you, you keep on doing those things, but you're making those things so important, you're leaving out the most important things. things no, no, of course not. No, no. This is that's the tax system for the old for the for the Jewish people. And so, uh, but you know the things that that people can't see the inward things. See, people can't see your inward purity. They can't see that. People can't see what you're doing when you're by yourself or what you're thinking about in your head. Unless it comes out in actions. And so that can only be done before God. But Christ, who can see into their hearts and minds, knew that they were filthy. They're just outwardly righteous. That's it.
3: I have a question about verse 33, just based on the context of what he's reviewing about. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the future uh, judgment coming to them. He's talking about Israel's, like, actual, (coughs) or Jerusalem's destruction. Isn't he temple destruction? No,
1: not. Verse
3: 33? Well, that's what I was wondering, because he's, I know, I I don't disagree that they are going to hell, but I'm wondering in that context, is he actually talking about that future judgment? Because this whole thing is talking about their judgment coming at the end. He, He releases and says, you know, at the end of it, he talks about how they're going to, uh, their house is going to be desolate. Well, that's. To explain it, anyway. And there
1: he's addressing all of Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, throughout this passage, he's basically addressing the scribes and Pharisees more than anything. I mean, yeah, if, yeah. if people, like John was saying, if other people are around, it applies to, obviously they can apply it to themselves too. Well,
3: I just meant that, that that version of Gehenna was actually the literal Gehenna in that sense. Is he talking about their future coming judgment? They're going to be destroyed. That's future coming judgment. It's not like, not, he, do you think he's referring to the future, like, eternal judgment? He's yes. About their physical judgment. No, there.
1: future eternal Judgment. Yeah, I've never seen Gehenna used any other way.
3: Well, what I, I don't know about Gehenna. And, I don't know about Gehenna and 70 AD. Were they actually sent to Gehenna? In any sense? Were they lost in there at all? I don't know anything
1: about it. Uh, well, after the place was destroyed, they did start to pile up bodies there, okay. and there were so many they began to burn them. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, or maybe I'm thinking about the the first temple that was destroyed. I'll have to get back it, to you it, on that one. There
0: were a lot of bodies from 70 AD, from uh, uh, whenever Jerusalem was under siege, and uh, they were starved death. I mean, from the accounts of Josephus, which seems to be accurate, uh, mm. it, it, it describes yeah. that, uh, uh, probably millions of, uh, probably like two million uh, people being slaughtered there. Yeah.
1: My memory's failing me. I'm about to go back and look at my notes.
0: That's
3: <laughs> why well, I was th-
1: wondering. I think it's talking about their their. Literal it could judgment. here.
3: I'm just wondering. Yeah. If it was yeah. that more, you're talking about more about the mm-hmm. judgment, you're talking about the temple being destroyed and going to be their fault basically the temple is destroyed because they're they're uh, not not
1: really. Well, it's all right. the people's faults.
2: Once yeah, they yeah. may end up killing each other. In 8070 <laughs> <hit> the, uh,
1: <coughs> when they were surrounded uh they no food or water can get in, people started cannibalizing each other. Um, they, they were even trying to eat money, I believe. Uh,
3: yeah, because I think I heard some kind of thing that Romans told me they getting cutting money back out.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what Paul mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I had another thing, too. It kind of builds on what I was saying before. It's why I'm having a supposition on it. Okay. Uh, in 39, when he says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, What's well, speaking to me there is it seems like he's saying, You will not see me as I really am the Messiah until you esteem those that are coming in my name. Because uh, like their fathers uh, killed the prophets because they did not esteem the ones who came in the name of the Lord. Uh, they themselves had the same art. They did not esteem those that came in, the na- came in the name of the Lord. So because of that, they're blinded. They're not seeing him as the Messiah. And they never will until they esteem those that come in the name of the Lord. And then they'll see him as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's why those two things together kind of speak in that mm-hmm. that premise. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like verse 39 to me is, I mean, that I guess that could be a possible interpretation of it, but... <coughs> seems like he's more talking about when he returns to the end but the uh, psalm so, um, seems to be talking about,
3: talking about the builders rejecting verse 22 psalm right. and, uh, talking about buying the sacrifice verse 27 verse 28 talking about his mercy enduring
4: presence. right
1: yeah yeah I think it's talking about the end but that's interesting to think about
2: earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you go down to verse 27 of 18, but I thought of it, that, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but you people say you can't win your salvation. Right. So right there in 24, it says. Makes it clear. So when the righteous turn away from the right, and it's not iniquity, if all the abominations of the wicked,
3: shall he live? And so he gives them the same name, shall we die? Right. Well, yeah, and right. it's very clear you talk to somebody who doesn't believe in nobody be like this. They'll basically say the same thing as Israel. That's not fair. Or right. something like that. That's the Old Testament. God changes his judgment, you think, how he does things?
2: Right.
0: Right. Mm. Yep. Nathan says, uh, my ways are unequal. He says that in Ezekiel if You see Israel complaining about
3: it. And it's just one, one stage what one state of people do today. So complain about it. Uh. You're trying to work your way. God said it right here. God is going to judge you like anybody in the world you do the same thing hard does if somebody lived right all their life and they turned to 85 years old and they died eighty-six to 85 they killed somebody and played a few people they're not going to be considered good by the culture no matter what they did for the last 85 years right and remember how good they were when they died
1: yeah verse 31 I mean this whole chapter if you read it kind of destroys Calvinism uh, all points of it every single point of it a tulip (coughs) you look at verse uh, uh, thirty. One, cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed, and get yourselves a new sp- heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? You know Calvin's will say, "Well, the new heart thing is something that God does; it's all God doing it." He's saying, "Get yourselves one." Okay. Well,
3: I
4: mean, me get it. Yeah, of
1: me. yeah. I mean, you you need to do something about it. Right. This is not monergism here; it's synergism. It says, you know, you, God draws, God convicts, you come. You need to choose to come. And verse 32 destroys uh, unconditional election, which says God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, to the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. Well,
0: thought,
1: yeah. But 18 just destroys all of Tulip. Every single letter of it.
0: God, you've shown in the other teachings before, uh, with the way Tulip's constructed, if you can just disprove one... It all so falls apart. Points, right. The whole thing collapses. Yeah. It's all uh, <coughs> reliant upon each part of the each yeah. point of the tulip.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's like hanging from a five-link chain on a high cliff, and one of the links breaking. Right. Doesn't matter how strong the other four links are, you're going to fall up to the bottom of that, that
0: that ravine. You're done.